0: The Center for Scholars and Storytellers works with leading social scientists to develop research insights and tools that are useful for content creators, crafting authentic and inclusive stories for youth. From their website, we work with a wide range of organizations from traditional media, tech and gaming, consumer products and public health and education. When content is created from a research informed perspective that is authentic and inclusive, it can deliver strong financial returns and support the mental health of the next generation so they can thrive and grow meet my guest founder dr yalda uels
1: hi this is yalda Ouls. um i am the founding director of the center for scholars and storytellers we're based at ucla and i'm a former movie executive and current scientist
0: joining dr uels is stephanie rivas lara Research Coordinator at CSS. I'll let her introduce herself.
2: Hi, my name is Stephanie Rivas Lara. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a first year graduate student working to obtain my master's in social welfare at UCLA. Um, And I also currently work as the Research Coordinator for the Center for Scholars and Storytellers.
0: I can't wait for you to meet the folks from Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. I really believe that some of what they are finding through the voice of the young people they work with will shape the media industry moving forward. Wouldn't it be nice to know as parents looking over your kid's shoulder that the voices of young people like yours had something to do with how characters and stories came together. If you're new to No Such Thing Podcast, welcome. I hope you'll come find us at facebook.com slash podcast or hunt us down on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you download your shows. The greatest gift this season is a five-star review. I know it's bold, but I'll tell you what, nothing feeds the algorithm like a five-star review. I will say thank you in advance for everything you do to help make this show more discoverable to others. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Oles and Stephanie Rivas Lara. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Yalda, I'm hoping you'll tell me about the Center.
1: The Center for Scholars and Storytellers. Um, The name kind of says it all. We basically bring together storytellers. I used to be a storyteller and scholars. I'm currently a scholar Um, to work together to harness the power of entertainment media to have a positive impact on young people. Um, and the ways that we do that is we um, we come up with research designs together to try to release studies that might motivate people to think about the mental health of young people with their content or to think about representation. We do workshops for content creators where we talk to them about ways um, that they could Uh, integrate diversity, um, in a modern way, in a way that, um, is, is positive for young people. Um, we've designed curriculums in partnership with uh, Mattel, um, and with, um, other people. We, we work with all the studios, we're working with gaming companies, we're working with YouTube, um, basically anywhere that young people live, work, play, listen, um, engage. um, That's where we want to be.
0: Can you describe the difference between what the center does and how I think the media industry usually thinks about, um, I think they mostly think about it through focus groups. Um, Can you make the distinction for folks, the, the difference between what you're up to and the sort of traditional way of doing things?
1: Well, the traditional way I think that researchers have worked with media companies um, and, and you know, I say entertainment media for deliberately. Um, we're focused on, you know, really where kids are hanging out in informal learning spaces, yeah. not in educational spaces. Um, and we um, are also focused on content that doesn't isn't, you know, broccoli, you know, it's not, it's, it's chocolate covered broccoli, you know, it is, it is, um, content that, you know, kids are using just to have fun, but there is, um, content in there that, that hopefully has a positive impact on them. Um, traditional researchers that work with media companies, um, they are often for preschool content. So there's a long history starting with Sesame Street of developmental psychologists working with um, content creators for preschool content to make sure that that content has good learning outcomes, whatever they are. There may be social emotional learning outcomes. They may be, um, you know, learning the alphabet. Um, But once you get past preschool, that's not happening. Mm. So we are, and there's no budget for focus. Well, I mean, there's, there's, for learning, there's no budget for making sure that a young person learns, um, you know, from the content. There is budget for preschool, but there's no budget beyond that. So we have to be really innovative and create original sort of resources. In and and that is why we collaborate with the industry because you know we want to make sure the practitioner likes what we're doing and says they're going to use it in their day to day work. So um, what we do. We don't really do focus groups or any of the sort of, you know, um, you know, thinking about learning outcomes that some researchers do.
0: It just resonates with me so much because I have a, a 13 year old and um, I recognize as somebody who has also worked in educational technology and educational media for a long time that. Most of the research on sort of cognitive outcomes and developmental outcomes really do stop at a certain point. And so um, part of what excited me about the Center for Scholars and Storytellers is that you're focused on a, a population that is so critically impacted by media, maybe differently and more so than ever before in history. And I want to get into that some with both of you, um, but people think, Yalda, just to stay on the industry for a second, a lot of times I think people think the industry is shifting because they see more representation than they have in the past. But I wonder to what extent you can just respond a little bit to um, what's actually happening behind the scenes in the industry. and. How far we've come with respect to media produced by executives and creators that actually represent who's watching more accurately?
1: Yeah. We still have a long way to go. Um, we're nowhere near um, parity. Um, if you look at census data for um, for women and people of color, that's for creation. there's there's there is uh, representation on screen is is pretty good. Um, but, but behind the camera, um, and in all levels, you know, down to grips and cinematographers and things like that, there's, there's, um, it's nowhere near a census parity. And as you probably know, um, uh, people of color, kids of color consume a lot more media than, um, white kids or highly educated kids. Um, and so if you were actually trying to look at, parity from uh, how much media they consume, it would have to be way above census data for, for true representation. Mm. So um, we have changed. George Floyd um, really shifted the conversation everywhere in America, media industry, no different, um, often um the people in these departments diversity equity inclusion now they're they're reporting to the head of production or the head of the studio the creative people rather than being housed in human resources um, so that gives them more power um, but there's we're also regressing there was a new york times article um up about two weeks ago about how the conversations are saying, oh, maybe we overcorrected and maybe we just are doing, you know, we, we don't really need to do this much. And there are also so many biases and excuses built into the system. There are so many people saying things like, um, you know, oh, internationally, uh, no, the international audience doesn't want to see people of color. So, um, you know, that may or may not be true. We found that they actually do report that they want to see 75% of them say they want to see multicultural content. Um, you know, and they say things like, Oh, uh, we'd love to hire that director, but they don't have enough experience. They're a first timer. Um, but then they hire the white male who hmm. has the similar experience. So there's, there's all these different ways that, P- the door is still closed. Um, you know, oh, <laughs> yesterday I heard, um, oh, well the women and people of color turned down all the directing opportunities. They were even more picky and they don't mm, want to do, yeah. you know, these, these, um, genre movies. Um, so, you know, that's code for saying, oh, they, they shouldn't get a big budget studio movie. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of work to do still.
0: I want to stay on something you said for a second because I don't think everybody realizes that the amount of media consumed by young people of color is they don't. I don't, I think a lot of people don't know about that gap, and so I I want to just stay on that for a second and ask, um, what is the data we look to that helps us understand that gap a little bit better?
1: I mean, I think the uh, the the entertainment business knows this because they have to measure their audiences um, in order to, you know, get advertising dollars or, you know, in order to create a marketing campaign. Um, and it's, what's interesting is this has been going on for a long time. It's nothing new. Back when I was in the industry, it was the same thing. Um, and now we are looking at data that shows that, you um, that people of color will go to see themselves at a higher rate. So that data is showing you that the audience had already, there didn't used to be enough content hmm. for, for people to make a choice. You know, there was, you know, maybe one, one story about their culture and 40 about, you know, centered on the white perspective. And um, so, you know, and they love content stories. So, you know, they go and see it. So you couldn't really make that argument, but now there's more content. So people are looking UCLA diversity report, for example, they look at, you know, um, on television, do black audiences, um, watch at a higher rate shows that have black characters and that argument, you know, if they are a huge percentage of your argument, uh, your audience, then that argument should lead to well, let's make them more content. Um, I we spoke to one company and they said they had put this um, show on the air, um, and this was a streaming company. They put this show on the air, and it had um, it was a black theme show, and all of a sudden their subscriptions jumped. Mm. And then when the sh- so they were like, what's what's going on here? And they realized that the, when the show, it was because these new this new audience was coming to their platform because there was content. And then when the show went off the air, they all canceled their subscriptions. Mm. So, you know, more evidence of things like that is is hopefully, you know, I mean, the, it, it's very, very, very entrenched, the biases, just like they are in American culture and in, frankly, the world. Um, but hopefully you know, with people really smart people really chipping away at the biases with data. And then, you know, what Stephanie said, also humanizing the data, we've been talking about how to do that so that you also, in addition to, here's what the data says, you give a human story. Um, I'm just gonna tell you this story where we did a workshop on colorism and we were talking about how colorism hurts hurts people and their mental health and you know educational attainment all sorts of metrics and we showed a clip from a show where the character who was darker was told she um she had she was pretty for a dark-haired girl, skin girl and when we turned the camera the show off, we had participants speak up and one of them was a beautiful young black woman. And she started saying, yes, that's happened to me. And she started crying. Mm. And that moment of really illustrating what we had been saying in that workshop together, that really shifted people's thinking in that room. And, Mm. you know, everybody who came out of that, they, they, you know, we've been asked to come back and do that workshop several times because it was so impactful. And um, so I think actually, you know, and we're thinking about this now, how do we also provide the human context beyond the data? Hmm. And just
2: just to quickly add on, I mean, there's also something to say about the reactions we can readily see on platforms such as like Instagram, TikTok, and social media. I think about shows that have recently come out that have this sort of representation about a certain community, um, and it really resonates with a whole group of people. And those reactions are pretty much posted online, and that's when you get the chance to see essentially those lived experiences that y'all talked about in terms of like the what happened in the workshop and. Platforms such as social media can kind of grasp at that and see the impact and the reactions that that representation pretty much has.
0: Mm. Does the center do any work with companies to help make better sense or organize some of that feedback through social media, or how how are companies separating signal from noise when it comes to social media being a sounding board for um, how whatever their most recent production? worked out?
1: I, I, they are highly attuned to the signals the audience is sending them. Mm-hmm. And they are often... You know, that's one of the arguments for them to really pay attention. They don't want to be caught out um, in a social media backlash. And so, unfortunately... Lots of times they have to be reactive, but, you know, we motivate them to be proactive Um, and they're doing their best. I mean, especially, you know, I mean, I know very well the companies we work with and they're very deeply resourced and also have had years of having targets on their back. So they know they know the negative impact, what it could do to their bottom line, to their corporate image, to getting regulation, you know, after them. So they are very, very, um, invested in trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, especially those companies that work with content for young people and they're known for that. So, I mean, we work with YouTube and Disney and they, they are very resourced and they are also really, you know, in our opinion, working very hard, to do the right thing and they're still criticized and they're still not perfect, but um, you know, they're, they're really ahead of the game. Um, And there are other companies that just aren't, you know, and they, they haven't yet maybe had that, you know, come to Jesus moment where somebody was, you know, after them. So, you know, they're, they're, you know, that's, that's kind of what's, it's, there are very few companies that build that into their, you know, double bottom line or really think about that. But, um, but because of, you know, the nature and now with social media backlash, they, they definitely um, know that they need to be careful.
0: Yeah. Well, and it pays, right. Um, We'll, we'll get to this, but I know, I know in some of your, the data that you've, um, you know, is very available on the center's website. There have been some reports you all have prepared in the, in the recent past that um, point to the huge gains. So that's that's no small point of uh, motivation as well, it seems.
1: That's what we're hoping. It's definitely... Um... One, it's, it's motivating, but two, it also gives the person fighting the fight tools. You know, it's interesting because ultimately you got to get to the, into the ears of the people at the top and they are getting the economic information, but, you know, they're still subject to their own biases, but the people at the, um, you know, there are plenty of executives. I was one of them that fight for. Um, the content they want to make, mm. and this is a tool for them. Look, here's a piece of data that shows that if we have this kind of story, we could be making more money. Um, so that's a reason for you, boss, to green light this. So so that's sort of, you know, one of the reasons and the levels that we hope our research and our tools can support yeah. content
0: Stephanie, I'm hoping you can respond to this. Uh, There was a 2021 report called Authentic is the New Aspirational that feels essential to understanding some of the other work that the center is doing around authenticity. Can you say more about what that means, uh, the shift from aspirational to authentic? Uh,
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like the first thing we'd have to tackle on that is define what exactly we mean by aspirational. Um, When we were looking at aspirational, it's kind of like content about story worlds that people wish they were a part of. And the most frequently thought of topics would be um, being rich, being famous. So aspirational is kind of essentially the hope or, ambition to achieve this certain level of kind of prestige and material success. Hmm. Um, And authenticity, on the other hand, kind of provides a little bit more, a lot more of like a genuine representation of an individual in a more holistic way that's not stereotyped. um, And it's true to the person's experiences. So... Um, essentially being true in the stories Uh, authentic content is kind of just being true in the stories you're telling about the specific person or community um, you're telling the stories about so this shift from aspirational to authentic is essentially us kind of trying to push people and encourage people to move away from this sort of over-representation of aspirational of like wealth and the idea of being rich towards something that's more meaningful and doesn't really fall into those sort of stereotypes um that answers your question
0: it does so do you i wonder um in in addition to um being an important voice for the center and for the work i think the other thing that that uh I'm super interested in is your perspective, uh, like yours is a gi- different media consumption generation than mine. When you think of like, of this transition from authenticity, or from aspirational to authentic, is there a title that comes to mind for you? Or like, you know, and and maybe it's a YouTube series or maybe it's, you know, but is there something that comes to mind for you right away when you think, like, this is the aspirational that this generation is kind of casting aside?
2: Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> um, I mean, when I think of aspirational, I think of, I mean, growing up, I think of shows like, for example, maybe it's not as relevant to the people nowadays, but I think of shows such as like Hannah Montana that really strive Mm. for this famous idealistic world of success and fame and money sort of situation. Yeah. Um, And I mean, as much as one would like to, you know, I've I've, not a lot, but like as much as some people kind of want to strive for that sort of career, It doesn't really kind of grasp much of what most teens and people in life kind of aspire towards or head towards.
0: So flash forward, when we talk about the... 2022 project on Teens and Screens, which is actually the catalyst for me getting in touch and and wanting to learn more about the center and bring the center really to um, the audience of of this podcast. It was just under 700 young people. The average age was, uh, in terms of the number of respondents, the average age was about 15 Years old, and and this came up in that as well, right? So it starts in that 2021 report, authentic being the new aspirational, and then it comes up again in 2022. And I wonder, was there more data around that question that would help us understand more about what they mean by authentic when young people who responded said uh, that that. The media they're looking for is about authenticity specifically
1: we gave them the list of 15 items i'll let stephanie stephanie was the lead author on this by the way mm-hmm. um we gave them a list and we put rich and famous on that list and that was at the bottom and at the top was um but oh, i mean they didn't say they necessarily they wanted authentic stories what they said was they wanted stories to be that to fun for fun and to escape and stories that were more hope. Oh, stories that dealt with the real world. Mm. And and then they said stories about people other than like us. And the last one was hopeful. So, but anyway, when we gave them this list of 15, we sort of really parsed down all these different categories. um, And rich and famous was at the bottom. So, so Mm. it kind of confirmed to us in two different ways that, they're just not interested in this sort of materialistic lifestyle. Um, we believe they have a different way of thinking about the American Dream. Um, you know there's they're just not interested in what older generations you know believed and were interested in. So
0: Stephanie, I wonder what your response is to the way teens are seeing social media as being what your report calls. A hub for authenticity. So um, did this provoke other questions you have from your experience personally? And especially, I was interested in your your aspirations in working with young people as a social worker.
2: When I first stumbled across the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, um, it was a time in my life where I was going through a whole bunch of stuff, existential crisis over after existential crisis, essentially. Um, And as um, any teen, I was I was probably like 18 at that point, Um, as any late teen would do, I would kind of like turn towards YouTube and went down a little content spiral Um, And I stumbled across this one video um, and it was a pride video and specifically, and so it was a group of people um, in various varying LGBTQ plus identities. And they were just sitting there talking about their experiences, um, just talking about what pride meant for them and what, um, and how it kind of looks like in their life. And they were talking about the experiences And it kind of just somebody said the word asexual there and they described it a little bit. And I'm like, huh, that sounds precisely like the existential crisis I'm having right now. And so I think that media was essentially the tipping point of me learning more about that particular identity of being asexual and um. Just the LGBTQ community as a whole. And I started, you know, realizing things about myself um, that I didn't know before, or just things essentially started clicking into place. Um, And because I had had experiences that just felt very isolating, for lack of better terms. Mm -hmm. Um, And just seeing that media that kind of sprouted out that word and me starting. Um, a whole search afterwards just kind of shifted who I was as who I was, who I currently am as a person, essentially. Um, What about those individuals and those moments where teens like actually find themselves seen and heard through social media um, and that's the space where they learn about them and isn't that good, you know? And Mm. stories... Um, And content put on social media, and that's also just including media in general, like shows and movies, like, those, there are moments that people feel really impacted by something that they see on screen, Um, whether they see, you know, they finally see their queer identity on screen, for example, or their um, racial, ethnic identity on screen in a way that's not stereotyped and that actually kind of resonates with them. and it can be heartfelt and touching for them. And so I challenge everyone who thinks social media is inherently all bad. Mm.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great challenge. It kind of brings, it's a nice transition, I think, to the methodology that you all in in part um, are a part of in this work. You know, we, we are sort of edging towards this, this idea of young people's agency and voice in the context of what gets made. And I think um, the center as a conduit um, for that voice is such an important and powerful idea to me. It reminded me, as as I started to learn the center more, that um, of... Work that I had done in in youth participatory action research, which is a, a mouthful, um, but we have have come to learn about each other that we have this in common, and I wonder, Yalda, if um, you would talk just a tiny bit about uh, the connection to YPAR in your work and how the center is sort of using that as a, as a research methodology to get to some of the goals of the center.
1: Yeah. So we, you know, we, we're bringing research to storytellers and um, interestingly enough, uh, you know, we believe that, that the people who create content for young people should Integrate young people into part of their storytelling process, but they don't. And I was at an event a few weeks ago, and I asked this writer who writes content for young people um, if they believe they should integrate the youth voice. And they said, "Oh, well, the way that I do it is I remember my own childhood, my own adolescence, and my and I have kids the same. Hmm. And you know, those are." traditional sources, but, you know, this generation being so different, and also it's really impossible to put yourself back um, that far in time um, to remember it. And so we, um, we are bringing, we believe that they should be listening to young people. So as part of us are sharing research with the industry, we have a group called YMR, Youth Media Representation. And we use YPAR methods to get them to um, think about a question that they'd like to address around media and representation or mental health. Then they, um, we help them design a survey and survey their um, their community, however they define that, and then a- analyze that data. And then we also teach them about storytelling and how people, you know, Integrate other voices into a screenplay and how that process works, and then we um, we help them present their research to storytellers. So we're very excited about this program. We don't think there's anyone that knows how to that that else is doing it. There are people doing YPAR. There are people teaching young people how to tell their own stories. Um, but we're sort of mixing this and really helping them communicate more effectively with storytellers. And our hope is that we'll be known for that and we'll start to get storytellers wanting to hear from teens um, and wanting and feeling like it's useful and feeling like it might um, help their storytelling process. Um, And that'll help, you know, validate these teens and the work they're doing and also possibly teach them skills that could lead to a career.
0: I am with you that I hope you all become known for it and become you know responsible at least in part for making this a ubiquitous practice because I so so believe in the approach um, the question that I wanted to ask that's a tough one but but Y'alda specifically from your perspective having been an executive in this space um, my question is I, I I've, Worked and actually, am, we're currently doing some work to bring YPAR to schools, um, which is a funny thing to think about. That, um, of all places, educators would need to be thinking um, with young people's voice in mind because you think they're surrounded by young people's voice. Um, but even in education, uh, we have a system where for a very long time we've relied on sort of the, the wisdom of adult experts to create the right learning environment and experience for young people. And, and part of what we're trying to do is to push WIPAR as a practice to help um, schools and educators to understand what it takes to bring that voice into uh, into their practice. And so, and that's been hard. And so I wanted to ask you in a field that is not known historically for having youth outcomes in mind, you know, what do you think it takes to make this practice part of the heuristic of popular media? And, um, you know, are there, I, I wonder if if you have specific you know, success stories or or even challenges that characterize what it's like to make this part of the practice?
1: Um, I think the u- information has to be useful. So we're actually having them share the research. And they ha- so the people who are making the content have to feel like, oh, I never thought thought about that. Oh, that's the way a teen thinks. That's the way they talk. Oh, that's, you know, what they care about. Um, I should be thinking about that. I could use that if I'm writing something or I can use it if I'm going into a studio and saying, I want to tell this story. I can say, oh, well, I talked to these teens and, you know, they had talked to a hundred teens and this is what they said. And, you know, I, so I think the piece that we're helping them with is making that information useful. I think the teens, you know, the, the challenge for anyone working with teens is um, they do need scaffolding. They do need wisdom. They do need, you know, they need to take that energy and the brilliance that they have and, and learn and, you um, you know, be able to offer it with the context of whatever, you know, audience they're talking to or reaching. Um, and so that's where I think um, we can add value and help them. Um, we had three teens present at our summit. We have an annual summit and it was amazing. And um, they did a great job. I have so many people in the entertainment business afterwards telling me, how incredible they were! And I went up to a group of writers. They're preschool mainly, but they were like, "Oh my God, we definitely need. I can't. We, teens need to be in the in the writers room. <laughs> like, mm. you know. So, so I think the more exposure, the more the better we get this program down, and the more exposure we can give these teens to 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 writers, um, the more they'll be called upon. Yeah but that's a long, heavy lift. It's, it's not a, like, you know, it's, it's two to three years of training and getting them the program really good. And, and then brand awareness, pushing, pushing, figuring out the right outlets for them to talk, you know, do we, do we take them to uh, something that, you know, every, every, uh, the austin film festival or or comic-con and have them Mm -hmm. speak about superheroes right do we do something like that that um gets the audience that is you know i mean a lot of people go to these things and and that's we're gonna have to get to that point
0: yeah yeah it's hard to flip a switch on uh something as as important as what what you're describing and and complex right um The superhero comment brings me to another question that I think is uh, this was a really fun thing to check out in your in one of your recent reports. So one of the questions asked of teens is imagine you are a casting agent and you have to cast a new show. Who would you cast in the following roles? Um, Stephanie, I was hoping you would just sort of um, talk about some headlines from the results of that question um and just tell us what you learned from uh from respondents in that one
2: essentially i mean like you said we asked them you know put yourself in the position of somebody who's casting these certain characters from a show in a movie um and who would you kind of cast for that and we what well, we pretty much saw is that the majority of the teens that answered our survey they said that they would love to see a black male hero um, and an even larger majority of them kind of said I want to see white males as a villain and um, which is kind of just signifies a shift in in thinking is of who represents a hero and who represents uh, a villain because um, there's been past studies that have done that have done something sort of similar to that question that we asked um, and that we drew inspiration from and from that we saw that oh they would cast a white boy as a hero um, while only a small percentage of those respondents from that past study would say um, they would cast a black male as a hero as as a villain my bad um, so and now you know as, as kind of we've already mentioned, just these perceptions have changed over time um, and what teens kind of hold um, as important and what they want to see has changed over time. And it will continue to change over time. Um, there's no denying that as well. But this shows us the shift that has happened now of wanting to see a person of color uh, be that sort of hero in a movie or a show or whatever it is um, rather than what we used to see as like the stereotypical white male, white savior in, in any sort of, sort of superhero show. I'm sticking with the superhero show right (laughs) now. Um, But Wakanda forever recently came out and Wakanda black Panther has kind of just highlighted that and the impact it's had on so many people as well um, and just I won't I wouldn't be surprised if if we do this again maybe things will change as well and now seeing a shift towards um, instead of male heroes and villains we'll see female heroes and villains and just see more of a, like a little nuances as as time passes by and more shows and movies come out that show these different. Um, things that than what we're used to seeing as well
0: I wanted yeah uh, i I noticed that right so the the amazing the amazing news is that this the research that you mentioned was uh an important you know a, a report that i I'm comfortable citing just because it was cited in the paper it was from Nickelodeon um, and it wasn't that long ago it really wasn't right? so <laughs> In, in a period of, of just a few years, um, that data came out very different when asked.
1: But but I also have to say there might have been yeah, a de- developmental component because um, those kids were younger and, mm-hmm. you know, our kids were older. So, yeah. And that data came out a couple of years ago, but it was probably collected, you know, a year before. So that too, well, maybe not, but, but there might be a developmental component, you know, kids, sure. kids tend to sort of internalize the biases. I mean, we all do. They're all there. Um, and then as they get, you know, older into these teen years, they're sort of questioning some of these, questioning authority, questioning the things that mom and dad yeah. or school teachers told them.
0: So that's that's an important distinction. But I think the, uh, I, and I think um, it makes our earlier points, um, you know, just particularly rich that uh, these things change fast and we really don't know enough about if they had the choice, um, how they would, you know, put these stories together for themselves and their younger siblings and, and these things. So, um, so, so both can be true that, uh, you know, developmentally that might make a lot of sense. It also is an extremely interesting data point that, just points out a contrast that media um, should be extremely uh, attentive to, right? Um, And and I think part of why it's so important that you all are are doing the work that you are, that uh, it's pointing out some gaps that are just important to continue to massage and understand and what voice is is better to help us do that than um, than young people themselves? So I want to give you a chance to plug anything that is exciting or relevant that you want to point folks to at Center for Scholars and Storytellers. Um, is there, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they head?
1: Scholarsandstorytellers.com. We are on socials. We're on LinkedIn. We're on um, Instagram or we have a YouTube channel, you know, I mean, on our site, we have lots of different resources, um, learn who we are. We like to engage with lots of different kinds of people. If you've got teens, look at our youth engagement area. If you're a PhD scholar introduced, introduced, interested in our work or some other academic or somebody who wants to collaborate, look at our collaborators and supporters, um, You know, we've got uh, resources for storytellers. If you're interested in our educational work, any of other work, we'd love you to sign up for our newsletter um, because that's the best way to learn what we're doing. Steph, what do you think?
2: You pretty much summed it up really well. I mean, I would personally emphasize a lot on the teen side of things for sure. If you know someone who's a teenager right now that would love to, you know, be a part of this or if you are a teen listening to this right now as well um by all means check out our youth engagement page on our on our website and see how you can get involved i I work personally with the teens in our uh ymr project alongside the youth coordinator manager um and they they're all really they all have a lot to say you know Mm -hmm. um and it's really great to hear their opinion so i'd love to continue hearing what other people have to say as well.
0: I really believe in what you guys are doing. So thank you for being here. For sure. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.